For our inaugural podcast, we say hello to Cabby Richards, one of the most famous and unique media personalities in Canada and the man of Cabby on the Street, Cabby Unlimited, Cabby Presents, and most importantly, a man of inspiration to many in the media industry. How are you, brother? Uh, very good. Thank you for that wonderful intro. You're very kind. Thank you. Do I owe you money for that? Like, oh. am I going to get a request for an e-transfer? Yeah, we're good for sure. We're good for sure. All right. So um, I don't mind sending one because that was wonderful. But no, please continue. No. Uh, so you just moved back to Canada. How was your experience living in the States? Um, it was interesting. Is it the right word? But being a Canadian living in the United States, you have obviously a different perspective and being a black person living in the United States is also a more contextual experience. So when I was there during the racial awakening, the racial reckoning during the pandemic, so it was like, we had two pandemics. There was COVID-19 and then there was like racism where people were like confronting it. And so that was, um, and people were inside and then people were outside um so it, it it was um i don't know if i'll ever forget that experience and I'm, i know i'm not describing it that well it was i was just very i was cautious about my moves i was also aware that we were in times that were changing and we were in unprecedented times because these two things were converging at the same time and uh they were different but then one the COVID 19 pandemic became very political so now you had and then issues of race aren't political, they're societal, but that also became political. And then you had sports, which restarted in the end of July with the NBA and then hockey and baseball. Uh, and then uh, obviously the NFL too, playing in empty stadiums. But there were, there were demonstrations of activism, which were really cool to experience and seeing how the public was reacting to that uh it was yeah it was it was such an interesting time i never felt an overwhelming sense of fear but i was always cautious when i was moving around in las vegas and las vegas is a very fun place i mean the strip is world famous you have world famous entertainment world famous restaurants world famous casinos but everything was shut down and when you say cautious what's the number one thing you were scared about uh, my interactions with people, you never know what somebody's going through and you'll never know how they'll react in everyday circumstances. And we saw more and more videos of Karen's and Kevin's like just so angry at the world for whatever reason and people infracting on their quote unquote freedoms, whether it's wearing masks or just having interactions with people that don't look like them and them feeling emboldened to speak their to reveal their true selves while they're being recorded with and these are just the incidents we saw recorded with phones think about how many other incidents that happen in the world that aren't documented so that that's been a big change for a lot of people is seeing how some of the world operates because now it's being recorded i think will smith said the great will smith said Racism, we're not experiencing more racism. It's just that it's being recorded now. So when I was cautious, I was just very aware of 
interactions at like a Target or Costco or driving, you know, in, I lived in an area called Summerlin, which is a nice suburban area. And I didn't, I didn't feel afraid. Um, but I, you just never know what someone's going through. And uh, I did I never wanted to take that chance. So I was overly friendly. I was extra Canadian when I was in the United States. With the score, you said that they were taking a chance and they were smaller. Do you think that was like a perfect fit for you and you trying to get into the industry as well? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think, had I tried to start at TSN, I never would have gotten a shot. I was doing streeter segments. I was a man on the cabbie on the street. I was literally walking around the streets of Toronto, interviewing random people at the beaches or in malls or on college and university campuses, asking stupid sports questions, challenging people to random street hockey games or street soccer games. Um, that wasn't TSN's whole presentation was we're a traditional sports network. Our anchors wear suits or they dress business casual. Our reporters are in the, they're very buttoned up. It was, you know, and I started doing Cabin on the Street in 2001. On television in my era, people doing similar content pieces, we just call, used to call them videos, was a, a duo named Darren Jones, named Darren Jones and Mr. Mo. They had a, um, a show on that they called The Buzz, which was on Rogers Cable. So it was like, the Toronto, local Toronto station. And then Rick Mercer was on, I think, Royal Canadian Air Force or This Hour 22. I think it was Royal Canadian Air Force. And he was doing a segment called Talking to Americans where he would travel to border towns, go over the border into the United States and then ask Americans about Canadians. And a lot of the humor was derived from Americans knowing nothing about their neighbors to the North. And it was really funny stuff. I was trying to make fun of myself and ask also asking like stupid um sports questions i didn't i suppose in some ways uh rick mercer influenced me i didn't watch the show very often but i was aware of what he was doing and we were both pretty silly and goofy guys so it it probably yeah he probably influenced me in some ways which interview was it that really said to you like i can do this like this is like this can kick off my career the first time I got to interview athletes, uh, I, I did a bit with uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Toronto Raptors, the Charlotte Hornets, and then there was another hockey team. Um, and I was asking them about like pregame meals and if guys ate pork and it was it was pretty stupid. But being like having them respond playfully to my stupid questions was validating. I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. And um, I got to host Vince Carter's charity basketball game. So it was during Caravana, which is this huge Caribbean festival, which takes place the first weekend of August every year. And Vince had a bunch of his friends from the NBA descend on Toronto and play in this charity game. And I did a bit with like Vince Carter and JYD and Morris Peterson. These are a bunch of names that are before your time. Antoine Jameson. I think Baron Davis was there, Elton Brand, um, maybe Baron Davis wasn't there, but like 
they were joking around with me. I mean, it's the middle of the summer, so everybody was in a great mood. They were there for a charity event. But that was another one that was like, oh, okay, this this feels awesome. Like hearing these guys laugh or be, just even meeting them was like a pretty big deal for me. So I think that was, and that was that was a summer of 02. So that's when I felt I could do this. And then it just, um, it just elevated from there. For segments that you did in the past, like giving the Stahl Brothers $20, wrapping knobs and touching Mo Pete's face. What would you do when your interviewee would be kind of awkward in that moment? Nothing. I would I would bask in that moment. Like with the Stahl Brothers, it was never awkward. I was giving them money. Like they obviously, if someone gives you money, you're gonna put it's gonna put a smile on your face. Unless they're giving you less than you expect, then maybe they might have a, a sideways glance. But you know, that bit was that was from uh it started in 2006 when Edmonton went to the Stanley Cup finals and they played. Carolina and Steve Coolius, who was a colleague of mine at the score, he's like, you should do a bit where you're, you say you're one of the Stahl brothers. Cause there are four of them that played hockey. The last Stahl brother, I don't know if he made the NHL. What was his name? Jared Stahl. Jared. Um, but I just said I was the fifth Stahl brother. And then my producer, my man, D Dave Crickst, he gave me the great note. He's like, you should start every segment where since you say you're the Stahl brother, just say, hey, mom gave me $20 to give to you for lunch. So, um, and it, and it, like my entire career of interviewing all, the three Stahl brother, brothers, Eric, Mark, and Jordan, I would give them 20 bucks to start every interview. Um, and uh, Eric never gave the money back. I gave him, I'm pretty sure over 200 bucks. Mark would always try to give it back. I'm like, no, 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 we gotta, we gotta stay true to the bit. And then Jordan was like 50, 50. Uh, I interviewed Jordan a lot during the 2008 and 2009. They went to the Stanley cup in consecutive years. Uh, Eric, I interviewed probably the most over, over time. Actually, I did interview him in 2009 as well. When he played with Carolina and they got upset by, by the Pittsburgh, not upset, but they got beat by the Pittsburgh steel um, penguins who then went on to win the, the Stanley cup. Uh, Mark, Mark probably five times. I'd say Jordan maybe eight times and then Eric probably 14 or 15 times. Okay, so that's not awkward. What was awkward was touching Morris Peterson's face. Now, a grown man never wants another grown man to touch his face unless he's romantically involved with that person. Mo Pete and I, not romantically involved at all. So the awkwardness that it would create, I enjoyed that because people are seeing these athletes way differently than they have ever seen because they only see them as competitors on in their field of play where they're really intense and then mo would be like come on man like he'd almost he playfully want to fight me but he wouldn't ever fight me because he knew that i was just like joking around but every time i touched his chest or touched his face or i asked him about his sister it would create a moment that i could just sit in and it could be awkward or i could try to like ch exchange like one-liners with him uh, and that was a lot of fun for me. What was, what was the third one you mentioned? So I mentioned wrapping knobs. Oh, yeah. the, oh, see, yeah, that's, and I got to salute the great Steve Ludzig, who was a former NHL player with Chicago. And he was a coach of the Tampa Bay lightning. Um, he gave the idea to DK. He said, you should, you should do a, 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 a segment where you ask players how they tape their stick with the obvious innuendo, how they wrap it up in the bedroom. So the magic of that piece is the audience knows, they know the innuendo right away, but it's when the players clue in to what I'm really asking them, that's when you see just amazing moments. 
And then certainly when I asked them, like, how big is your knob, which I think people would understand the innuendo, some people, so then they would have fun with that because like, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm at, it's the double entendre. I'm, I'm physically there with their hockey stick, but then really, what does their hockey stick represent? So that was, that's probably the funniest bit I've ever done. Like, uh, just for sheer laughs per minute, it's probably the best, it's probably the funniest one. And, and all credit goes to Steve Lugzig for coming up with that idea. So have you ever had a moment where you did something like that and somebody got mad at you? Yeah, I once made fun of Amari Stoudemire's tattoos. We were in Phoenix and one of the players told me that he loses, or at the time was losing the most money on the plane playing poker. I think it was, I think it was Raja Bell who told me that. So I was just standing next to Amari having a conversation and I like, I don't know what tat was on his forearm. Maybe it was the dollar sign or maybe I don't know, it was a Barracuda or something. And I was like, did you have to get that tattoo because you lost playing poker on the plane? Ooh, he did not like that. What the fuck you say? Sorry about the language. What the bleep kind of interview is this, man? Yo, LB. So at the moment, at the time, it was just Amari Stoudemire, me, my producer DK, a camera guy, just four of us in the, the Suns uh, locker room. Then Leandro Barbosa just happens to walk in. And he's like, can you believe this ish, LB? pissed it was so uncomfortable bro and then like he started to just kind of walk away from me and i was like all right this moment is over i just turned around and walked out and i don't know if i don't know if i ever used that clip and I, bro i don't even remember what the bit was going to be i did interview other players on the team i can't even remember what that piece was but yeah amari stoudemire not happy about it who is your favorite person to interview I loved interviewing Mike Richards and Ryan Getzlaff in the NF and NHL. They're both good friends of mine. They let me, do, I've been to their homes. Um, they let me have 100% free reign on their personal space, things in their homes. Like I, I've, uh, I did tours of both of their homes actually, like a, my version of Cribs. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, Mike Richards gave me one of the biggest blessings in my career. I got to eat Captain Crunch and Lucky Charms out of the Stanley Cup. Um, and then in baseball, I mean, Vernon Wells and Jose Bautista were amazing. Like they both gave me a lot of their time. They're both down for all of my stupid antics, all the, me putting my face against Vernon's face, Jose, like I could put my face in his beard. You know, I had him, uh, we did a bit once where he was walking outside of the Sky Dome eating a hot dog like 90 minutes before a game and people were looking at him like, that can't be Jose Bautista. Like in full uniform, that can't be Bob. It's 5.30, the game starts at 7.07. What is this guy doing? Eating a hot dog. Um, and in football, I had the most fun with Aaron Rodgers who um, allows me to be, again, 100% my goofy ass self and he appreciates how much time and effort I put into the props that we like custom make for him. And then in uh, and then Kobe, it's or in in the NBA, it's it's the late great iconic Kobe Bryant was my favorite. So and Kobe um, allowed me to be a complete clown. And he had boundaries though. He didn't always enjoy some of the stuff that I wanted to do because he was super alpha. And I also, I also wanted to go to his house and he, he never let me go to his house. So 
um, so there were there were certain boundaries, but he did understand that I'm there to be playful. I'm there to have a good time. I'm not there to do anything controversial. So he let his guard down, which allowed the audience to see him differently. So you never had that feeling of like, yeah, this is me. I'm Cavi. Like I'm talking to all these people. You never had that feeling. No, ever. no. After every interview, I immediately turned into producer mode. And then I thought about, okay, this person mentioned this against this team. Okay, I gotta go find those highlights. Okay, maybe I can put a highlight montage over here. Okay, this is a great moment. Okay, do we um, do we pause it and put some tech, flash some text on the screen? Like I, I immediately started thinking, how am I going to tell this story in three minutes or five minutes? This conversation, what is it gonna look like on camera for the people at home? So I didn't, it's rare. It was only until maybe the pandemic that I started looking backwards at some of the things that I did. And I had feelings of accomplishment and I had like, and I guess when I have um, conversations and podcasts with people like you, certain um, interviews or experiences uh, come up in conversation. So that allows me to reflect a little bit, but in my daily life, never reflect. I'm always looking forward. And I've been very fortunate to do some really cool things, but I'm always like, what's the next thing? And I probably should live in the present a little bit more, but you know, we're, we're in the content game and we got to feed the machine and we got to find ways to break through so that people won't just scroll past our, our content and our videos and our photos. And it's very hard to do. And what was your favorite interview? Which ones come to the top of your mind first? Um, I mean, the ones that come to mind are riding in a limo with Kobe or flying in a helicopter with Kobe. Cause those are just crazy experiences for me and what Kobe means to my career. I, I'll probably have Kobe up there. Kobe, Kobe is number one. Um, but there's, you know, Things have been, I've been really fortunate, man. You know, I, I, um, I got to drink out of the Stanley Cup and eat food out of the Stanley Cup. Uh, a, uh, a privilege that has been granted to very few. I mean, the people who have won have enjoyed it. And I suppose some of their friends and family have enjoyed those privileges, but it's not, it's not something that, uh, that tens of thousands of people can do. Or, and maybe it's only a few thousand that have have had the access to be able to do that. Even guys who have played in the NHL don't have, not everybody wins the Stanley Cup. Um, let me think of something. I mean, I really enjoyed, I did a bit with Steven Stamkos where I was his acting coach. And I just, he would, he would, he would do a line, recite a line, like an iconic one from a comedy. And he's looking in the mirror to get him ready for a Coke commercial, a Coca-Cola commercial. That was a lot of fun for me because the, the last scene we did was from Jerry Maguire and he's playing Jerry Maguire. And the line that I gave him to read was Jerry Maguire saying, and this is a movie, this is too, you're too young for this movie, but he's losing his clients. He's an agent and he's losing his sports clients. And he's speaking to one of his clients on the phone. And this is Tom Cruise in 1996. And Tom Cruise is saying, he says, I don't know what it's like to be a black person. I'm Mr. Black people. So hearing Stamco say that, looking into a mirror with the, the same enthusiasm as Tom Cruise, like that was so hilarious for me. And the line is so ridiculous. Um, that's one I really, I really enjoyed. Um, 
there, you know, there was a moment where I gave Big Poppy a t-shirt. I did a, a bit about hip hop and baseball and Tim McAuliffe gave me this line. He used to have this line when he did highlights. He, uh, you know, a, a player would smash a home run to center field and then he would say, I got 99 problems, but a pitch ain't one. Tim was so great with his catchphrases. So I put that caption on a t-shirt. And then I had like five other captions based on hip hop songs. Uh, and then Poppy was like, I like this one. I like, I got 99 problems because and a pitch ain't one. So then he ended up wearing the t-shirt under his uniform in a game. And he hit a home run wearing that t-shirt. And I could tell in the broadcast because his jersey, his top two buttons flapped open. And then I could see the text of the gray t-shirt, black text under his jersey. And I was like, that's amazing. Like he took this stupid prop and actually wore it in competition. And then he had the ultimate result, which is, and I think they won the game, but he hit like an upper deck shot to right field in the Sky Dome, an absolute bomb wearing something stupid that I gave him in an interview. So, I mean, that was, that was pretty special for me too. I've had a few of those moments and they always feel surreal because an athlete brings an idea of mine or my man D's into their world and they use it. So it's, that's very, it's very rewarding when that happens. So with being surreal, for example, with my players that I've interviewed, you start to like care about them. And with you- Yeah, yeah, yeah. You develop a bond, of course, yeah. and you root for them. Yeah, and with you um, on the somber side, like with how many times you interviewed Kobe, like how surreal was that when you found out of the accident? It, extremely. It was. It didn't. It didn't feel real. I kept refreshing TMZ to see if it was real and get uh, more information. And that whole Sunday was. Uh, I, it was like almost like an outer body experience because one of the last people you would think would leave us early would be Kobe Bryant because what he meant to the world of basketball, what he meant to the world of sports and how he was changing culture with his Mamba mentality and how huge of a, uh, of an ally he was for women's sports. His, uh, uh, Natalia played volleyball, uh, Gigi played basketball. Kobe would go to WNBA games and sit courtside, wear a hoodie, was, he had, he had um, relationships, like deep friendships with a lot of the players. Sabrina Ionescu spoke at his memorial. Like I was there and I saw her, like they had a friendship. And then, you know, he was a huge advocate for women's soccer too. He was friends with Sidney LaRue, you know, Megan Rapinoe, um, icons of the sport. And Kobe was like, these sports are important. I'm in, like, we should all embrace them because these are the best athletes in the world, regardless of gender competing. And they sacrificed any, everything to get to that level, which was one of, you know, one of his personal beliefs was, you know, chase your own greatness. So it was, uh, it was surreal, man. It was a tough one. With those personas, for example, that Black Mamba, when you would interview people and you would see a different side of them, when you would like kind of break them down and they would be more personable to you, how would that make you feel? It was rewarding. It was uh, almost like a badge of honor when somebody gets when somebody got my style and got the character and got the tone and they allowed themselves to be playful, it was awesome. Uh, you know, uh, what's one that comes to mind? I got, once I got JJ Watt, um, I, I asked him like, my man D made like 
a personalized like stamp with his two initials, JJ. And I was like, JJ, where do you inflict the most pain on quarterbacks? I'm like, I need you to show me on my person. I need you to stamp parts of my body where you inflict the most pain. And then it's like shoulder, chest, ribs, you know, uh, abdomen, and then, you know, neck. I'm like, what about on the, the this region? And I'm, 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 pant- I'm motioning to my face. And then he put a stamp right in the middle of my forehead. I'm like, this guy gets it. And it's uh, awesome. Oh, man, Kyle Lowry. Kyle, uh, who was uh, so much fun to interview. Uh, you know, one time, what actually one of my favorite bits was getting Kyle Lowry, Paul George, Kevin Love, and Brendan Jennings to draw self-portraits. I printed these beautiful, like Getty image photos of their face. And I just showed up to practice one morning and then I I got them. I think they appreciated how much effort I put into it. So I had like blank canvases, brought a Sharpie, but like how much effort I put into the idea and then uh, got them to draw self portraits. And that was one of the first segments that we did, which made it like that was posted on USA Today. And I think it was on Sports Nation as well on ESPN. And Dave and I were like, wow, that's a huge win for us. Just being these two guys from Canada and having our work on these big American platforms. So that, that's one, that's another one I feel I like would be in my top five or top 10. Who are you most starstruck to interview? Michael Jordan. How did you know hugging Michael Jordan was a good idea? I, uh, <laughs> it was a leap of faith. Bro, I'm so stupid. Like Michael Jordan could have reacted 180 degrees differently like he could have been like yo what the bleep are you doing bro could have put me in a headlock could have gave me a throat chop i think jamie fox tells a story of how the first time he kind of ran up on denzel washington he was so excited and he was he was like yo denzel and denzel like put him in a chokehold he's like okay let's slow down come on now slow down he tells the story on like fallon or kimmel or whatever it's one of his favorite stories to tell so michael jordan could have reacted the same way to me as this chubby reporter in a in a baggy shirt and stupid crooked hat like approaching him or trying to hug him for the first time thankfully he wasn't like that um but uh, it could have went sideways very quickly so when you saw steve nash drop out and then michael jordan come in what were you thinking at that point fantastic research by the way i gotta commend you thank you your questions were great are great uh, what was I thinking? I was thinking, we got to get Michael Jordan. And there was an expectation at the score that like, if I'm going to this, uh, golf tournament and Michael Jordan's there, like I'm going to get Michael Jordan and Dave and I just played it cool. We picked our spots. We went to a different hole. Like the media was set up on say hole 16. We went to hole number one and then we went to hole number seven and then we went to hole number 14. Like I got him three different times. And each time I tried to extend the moment a little bit longer. So the full interaction or the total time of interaction was probably like three minutes. So it was a minute here, minute there, minute there. Uh, and, and so, um, uh, I can't remember your question. So how did I feel like, wow, like, okay, today I might meet Michael Jordan. And it was, uh, it was, it was incredibly special to me. What was your way to make people open up? And if you felt they weren't opening up, like, what would you do? I would be more animated. I would then, and I would also push back on some of their answers. If they had low energy, then I would compensate for their energy by being even more expressive, even more animated. 
And then they might react like, yo, what is this guy on? Did this guy just snort a whole bag of cocaine before he got there? The answer is no. Did this guy just drink a whole Red Bull before he got here? The answer, sometimes yes. Um, so I would just crank up the energy a little bit more and not expect them to match me, but hope it would it would lift their energy level a little bit more. So that's what I would do. And then I would just have some small talk at the beginning before we started rolling, ask about sneakers, the latest movie. Have you seen Candyman, for example, which is excellent. Or, you know, in those times it could be, uh, you know, have you seen Iron Man 2 or, you know, yo, the Kendrick album dropped last week. Have you, have you taken it in? I would just, I would use something in pop culture to find a connection point. So they didn't feel like, okay, this is like an interview interview. Like, oh, uh, you know, you guys are on a three game road win, road winning streak. You know, I wanted to avoid all that. So that, those are some, that was one of the techniques that I used to make them, excuse me, make the athletes feel more comfortable or feel comfortable before grilling them with something stupid. And did you get access all the time? And like, how did it feel when someone didn't give you access? I, bro, there were so many times we didn't get, we get more no's than yeses. And sometimes it felt personal. Cause like, why does this person wanna like talk to me for five minutes? Other times we knew the gatekeepers, the directors of PR, were just shielding their athletes from an interaction with me or that athlete had been requested so often that they're like, yeah, just this guy's over like flooded with requests. So we can't accommodate everybody. We don't want to burn this guy out. So, um, unfortunately, you know, we politely declined this time. So that, ha that happened a lot. So I just got to get used to it. So we get known just to keep it moving. So, you know, every week we might, send out six or eight interview requests and whoever said yes that's the one we're going to do so there was there was a lot of rejection so when i did my interviews for example with um athletes like off camera was my favorite part like who was really different off camera compared to on camera um who was the most different off camera and on camera okay um that's a great question um, there are some players that knew once the camera went on that they had to sort of turn it up a little bit. Uh, and I can't think of someone specifically, uh, maybe JJ was like that a little bit. Russell Wilson is like that. Um, cause they just know that like they were both faces of their franchise and they both i'd interviewed them enough where they were familiar with my style so they knew that okay i can i can have some fun here um wow uh now now i really want to i know i want to come up with someone great who you know so, okay so someone i don't know why this particular athlete is in comes to mind right now but he has the reputation of the best teammate in the NBA because he's in his own, he's on his own frequency. It is in his own orbit. And is just, he's so interesting because there's a certain level of mystery to him and he's so chill and out there on his own. It's Clay Thompson. So interviewing Clay, it is as fun or as 
not bizarre, but it's it's as fun and as um and as quirky as you might think. Because Clay is is his own man. Like he's one of one. He's out there, and uh, I have a lot of fun with Clay Thompson. I probably interviewed him six or eight times, and um, he's been he's been great almost every time. So when you've been like fun with them during the interview and you try to be fun with them after the interview off camera, has anybody got like mad? No, no, no. But listen, the interactions are very short off camera. We're not hanging out. Cause it's usually I'll interview someone after practice. So after the interview session's over, those guys want to go eat or they want to go back to the hotel to sleep because they have a game that night. So very rarely do I spend time with somebody afterwards. I've developed some friendships with guys. So we'll, we might go eat tacos later or have a drink. And that's cool. Like I think of Jared Stoll of LA Kings. He, he became a friend and Mike Richards and like Claude Giroux or PK Subban. Um, I might see them later, but generally speaking, I'm in town to do that interview for five or 10 minutes. Sometimes we got to book it to the airport and get on a plane or other times, you know, um, we'll stay for the game, but rarely, do I get to spend time with guys afterwards? Because every people just want to go home. They they have their routines, and athletes are very regimented. So anything that pushes the limits of their routines, they start like getting a little bit crankier. They're like, "Yo, I gotta go, man. I gotta. I got treatment to do, or I have to eat, or I have to go home because my kids, my kids three, and I need to go spend some time before you know my wifey you know puts puts him or her down for a nap." So. They, um, so I, I don't really, I didn't get to spend that much time with these guys. Okay. I wonder when you would go from like city to city interviewing these guys for like short segments, did life, was it really as good as it looked like it was like to the viewer? Was it that fun? Yeah. To- Listen, I, I didn't show a lot of the behind the scene. Like we rarely, I think the only time we ever did, like you, you would get a glimpse of my, of our lives. I say our, my man D and I is one of the one of the hockey one of the journeys to the cup we we covered the finals from beginning to end in 08 09 2010 so i would like have a few videos that i would shoot that i would post on the scores website i don't even know how many people saw them we weren't allowed to post our videos on youtube back then instagram didn't exist twitter was not around twitter i jumped on twitter sorry in 2009 but we weren't Twitter didn't even have a photo platform yet. So you'd have to use another program to like put pictures up. But the only time my process was shown was uh, one of the producers on Bar Down, this guy named Daniel Zakchewski, who's now uh, a sports center host. He did a bit like a day in the life of Cabby. And actually there's this, there's this, uh, Jesse Pollock, who's also a bar down star, uh, when he was at school, he shot a documentary about my career. And I think we did some, we did some behind like some uh, interviews at my house in my home. So it's like, people didn't really get to see me on the road that much. So they used their imagination to fill in the gaps. And yeah, it was fun. Like I, you know, traveling around city to city, we might stay for a night, we might stay for a couple of nights and we just go take in the town and meet new friends or we have friends in towns and we would go, you know, have a few beverages and stuff. So yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It wasn't like, we weren't living like Nelk boys or anything like that, um, but we had some fun. 
in a 2018 interview, uh, you said that you saw Colbert, Kimmel as inspiration. Are these the types of shows you, you want to do eventually? I would love to. Conan, Kimmel, Fallon. Col Colbert does it a little bit, but like Kimmel and Fallon, I don't, Conan too, seem to have the most fun with athletes. Like they play games with them. Fallon plays the most games. Ellen too. And it would be awesome. I know it's like they have all said it's a grind doing a daily one hour like talk show. Um, I love interviewing. Um, I'm not a joke writer and I don't think I'm not funny like those guys are. But, you know, I would push myself creatively to do sketches and bits and but it'd be really they, they have staffs of like 20 writers because you need you need different you need enough bandwidth to come up with stuff every day and certainly like the monologue is like 12 to 14 minutes that's like a 14 minute monologue is probably three jokes a minute or four jokes a minute so that's like that's like 50 60 jokes um of like what's happening that day so it takes a ton of create creativity and a ton of energy to put on a show like i would love it so i would love it so to your earlier question it would be incredible it would be a dream to do something like that what's an example of a time you failed i failed many times bro many many times a lot of my segments didn't really reach an audience so i mean you can check on youtube like some of the view counts are really low like the most recent one is i did an interview with Connor mcdavid and less than 5,000 people saw it. I wasn't with TSN at the time, it was just me. And I just posted it to my own channel. But that was like, that would hurt. Cause like, it was a really, it was a great interview, had great production value and um, not a lot of people saw it. So that's that's the most re recent big failure for me. Okay, I'll, I'll give you some of these then. I'll give you some of these. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. <laughs> What's one quote that has really stuck with you in life? Um, uh, don't show me the labor. Don't tell me about the labor pains. Just show me the baby. Don't tell me how hard something is. Just give me the final product. Nobody cares how hard, like nobody cares that an iPhone has components like the supply chain to make one iPhone touches like 65 countries or 65 different companies. Like nobody cares. And nobody cares that people, I shouldn't say nobody cares. Most people have our, our um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh my gosh, our um, apathetic to the people who actually have to make the iPhones. People just want a new iPhone every two years. iPhone 14, iPhone 15, like give me the new iPhone. So when I'm struggling with writer's block or I've hit a wall creatively or I'm in a grind where like I'm at the edit suite till five in the morning. Nobody cares. They just want something new as an escape from whatever they're going through. So I always keep that in mind. What's the biggest regret of your life? Um, I messed up some relationships or well, romantic ones, but also with like athletes that I regret because I was too anxious or I didn't play it cool enough in our, in our interactions or our, our text exchanges. It's just stuff that you learn. Like there's no blueprint of how to be a friend, how to be friends with a pro athlete. If you are in the media, um, th that's, what's one of the regrets that come to mind first, um, is messing up relationships. Um, I'm sure I was a jerk to some people at some points. 
I can't think of any of anything specific, but oh yeah, yeah, there there was yeah, some growing pains, bro. But I do I do have regrets about interpersonal relationships. Also, then with like coworkers, there were times I wasn't I wasn't a great teammate, and it was a learning experience, but at their expense. Like, so yeah, that 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 doesn't that doesn't give me any feel good thinking about how I should have uh, behaved or should have reacted. Just like texting an athlete and then getting like blown off. How much does that suck? Oh, uh, yeah, that's just, I'm a volume shooter, bro. So, you know, when I started it, like as an actor, you would get rejected 19 out of 20 times. So I was used to being like having no callback or just being ghosted before being ghosted was a thing. And then like me, I've always been a chubby, annoying bastard. So trying to court women also that's a volume game. I'm in there taking swings, proverbial swings in the box, striking out all over the place, striking out, like landing on one knee, striking out, looking, swinging at bad pitches. Oh, did I swing at some bad pitches? Uh, or just not being able to handle the heat in, in some circumstances. So I'm, I'm used to rejection. So they, they don't sting as much as they did at the beginning. Congrats on getting married, by the way. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> What was the happiest day of your life? Um, the happiest day? I mean, the day I was born. Um, the happiest day. Getting married is in my top three. Um, I re I think it was. Um, there are times where. I really connect with an app and I know this is like a work one and, 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 you know, some of your guests have probably said, you know, I don't have kids. So that I'm sure the day I have a child, it will replace the day that I was born as my happiest, the happiest day of my life. Uh, but there are times where like, I've had a great interview, like in the moment, it felt good. And then Dave and I wouldn't say anything to each other. We just kind of walk away and we just like, let that moment sit there. Those are amazing. Like a bunch of Kobe, Kobe, like the day I gave him pajamas or the day in the helicopter, like we didn't even, the helicopter ride was like 20 minutes to 25 minutes. So it wasn't even that long. But by the end of it, and we went to the game the next day and hits the game, went over D Wade. Like it was just, it just felt incredible. Like, I, I don't remember what I ate that day. I don't remember if I worked out that I probably didn't work out that day. Well, who am I kidding? Um, you know, uh, but um, yeah, the older I get, the fewer memories I remember. <laughs> so I have to latch onto the ones that I really remember. Uh, so, uh, I would say, yeah, okay. I'm going to stick with the day I was born. It's the happiest day of my life. Cause I probably got all the attention I wanted. I got some food. I was there with my mom. Uh, I was probably in a warm, I was next to her. I was warm. I was loved. It was, I'm sure it was awesome. Final question. Uh, what's, yes. One, what's one piece of advice you would give people? Um, nobody cares how hard it is. Nobody cares. So don't complain about it. People just, it's the same, I, you know, I, I touched on it earlier and it's a quote from Brian Burke and I don't know who Brian Burke got it from, but nobody cares how hard it is. Just listen, people, there is, there is truth to respecting or recognizing the journey and, and 
taking account of the journey. But since I've worked in sports my whole life, results are what matters. Like people judge you on wins. They judge you on the awards that you win. They judge you on all-star teams that you've been named on. They judge you on your production. They judge you obviously on championships. They don't judge me on that stuff, but just being around sports for so long, it's a merit. Like you gotta, you gotta put some wins on the board. So as hard as something is to you, try your best to push through it, but nobody cares. Like nobody cares how hard, like your job might be. They just want the, they just want that thing that you produce to be a moment of escape. And then they'll get the dopamine hit like, oh, I enjoyed that. Oh, oh that was fun. I'm like, oh, I learned something. And then they're on to the next thing. And there we have it. An interview with the great media icon, Cabby. Someone who, if you were watching sports shows in the 2000s, had to have seen. We thank Cabby for the interview and look forward to releasing past and new interviews as podcasts in the future. Thank you for listening.